Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 13, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 13. We continue our study through the Old Testament. Now, last week, remember in our study where old man Samuel, beautiful, beautiful old man Samuel, the prophet, where he speaks to the people and he tells them, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, remember? And then, you know, it's also with the inclusion of warning where he says, you know, if you do this, things are going to be good for you. And if you do that, things are going to be not so good for you. Now, here we are in chapter 13. Let's see what happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Saul reigned one year. So look at this timeline here. We have one year under the belt of King Saul. Year one is done and everything seems fine. And then look what happens here in verse 1. Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel. So year one is done and things are going It's without a hitch. Year two, you know, let's see what happens in this timeline of Saul, in this marathon of King Saul. So, you know, we're at the end of year two or, you know, is it the beginning of year three? Well, let's observe what happens here because we see here in verse one, Saul reigned one year and when he had reigned two years over Israel, we see this in verse two, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. Now, Remember the previous chapters. Israel had been victorious in battle. And in their victory, they wanted to kill the prophet Samuel. You know, where, you know, in one chapter, when, when, when the people, remember the elders, old man Samuel, there he is at home. He sees the elders of Israel. And then the elders say, hey, we want a king. We want a king like all these peoples are around us. We want a king. And, and so make us a king. And Samuel the prophet, he was like straight up like, you know, you, you guys don't know what you're asking. You, got, you, you have no idea what you're asking. And then he goes to the Lord and the, the, it's the Lord who tells the prophet Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Now, look at that beautiful intimacy with Samuel and the Lord, because for Samuel to be so hurt in that rejection, but then the Lord to give them that comfort of knowing, no, it's not you that they're rejecting, it's me. And you see that intimacy with these two, the Lord and Samuel. How beautiful is it to see? But then at the same time, the Lord tells Samuel, no, that it's it's what the people want, which shows us about the elders of Israel, because the elders of Israel were supposed to be a uh, a stopgap, you know, if you will, where, you know, kind of like a, a protective wall, so, you know, to, to, to help Israel. But you see, when they become the man pleasers, the elders became the man pleasers. And, you know, the, the people want this and the elders are like straight up. OK, let's give the people what they want. We're on board with the people. Instead, it should be it should be where the people say, hey, we want this. We want this. And it's the elders who should be allied with the Lord and say, no, this isn't right. This isn't right before the Lord because the Lord is our king. But now you have the elders who are the yes men and, you know, and, and they're aligned with the people. And the Lord tells the prophet Samuel, give the people what they want. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me, except warn them, warn the people. And so Samuel in obedience to the Lord, he does exactly that. He says, okay, you know, you're going to get your king, but at the same time, it's not without warning. And here's the warning. And then the next chapter, when we see the battle, you see how Saul, you know, comes to the rescue of Israel in battle and they are victorious in battle. And in their victory, it's the people who were like, you know, who was against us? 
Who was against us? Who who were the naysayers? We wanted a king. We got our king and he came to rescue us and we have victory. Who were the naysayers? Hey, bring us the naysayers. You know why? Because we want to kill them. And that was Samuel the prophet. They wanted to kill Samuel the prophet. You see? And we studied this several chapters ago, but then here we're going to see Israel in chapter 13. We're going to see that Israel goes on offensive again. And then here in verse 2, King Saul chose 3,000 men. And of the 3,000, remember in verse 2, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. But of this 3,000, we see separation. Separation. Because 2,000 in verse 2, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. So we have the total of 3,000, 2,000 with Saul. And then a thousand with Jonathan. In verse 16, not to get ahead of ourselves, but in verse 16, it's revealed that Jonathan is Saul's son. And of the 3,000, 2,000 are with Saul and a thousand are with Jonathan. And then we continue reading here in verse 2. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. So in this marathon of Saul, notice what we've seen so far in this marathon of Saul. We see war. And we saw the earlier war, but then now we see war again and we get a picture of the battlefield and the landscape of events here. And in verse 3, And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. So notice what we see here on this landscape of war, in this landscape of the battlefield where we see the detachment of Philistines. We see a detachment of Philistines and Geba, and they're attacked by Jonathan's group. You see, remember the 3,000 that Saul chose, and then there's the, of the 3,000, you know, 2,000 are with Saul, and then 1,000 are with Jonathan, and Jonathan is on the offense and goes on attack, but then they attack a garrison of Philistines that was in Geba. You see, and then we see here in verse three, then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now, notice what we see here. It looks like victory. It looks like victory with Jonathan. You know, we see Jonathan, the the son of King Saul, and you know, he's on the offense. He goes on attack and he attacks the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And Saul blows the trumpet, you know, let the Hebrews hear. And it looks like victory. It looks like victory. And the Philistines and Geba were attacked. And already we see Saul, what is he doing? He's blowing the trumpet. Let the Hebrews hear, let the Hebrews hear. Check this out. Look, we have victory over here. We won in battle over here. Now, you ever see like, I don't want to get carnal in saying this or explaining it like this, but do you ever see like rookie boxers, like a boxing match, you know, fighters? You ever see like rookies and when they fight, you know, it's the first round. And say, for example, the rookie gets a good punch in and then the opponent falls to the ground. Okay, so it's a good punch. It's a good punch. And then you see the rookie, the, you know, the, the rookie, the, the, the opponent falls to the ground. And then what do you see? You see the rookie celebrate as if he won the match. And then the rookie is jumping up and down, you know, in presumed victory. He thinks he won the fight. But the fight is far from over. I mean, if you, you know, if you watch the, the, the boxing matches, you know, the fight is far from over. And, you know, the, the referee, you know, the, the opponent falls to the ground. The referee b- begins to count, you know, and the seasoned opponent is on the ground 
fully knows that the rookie, okay, yeah, the rookie got a good, a good punch. It was a good punch. The, the, the established fighter, the seasoned fighter knows, okay, you know, I'll, I'll hand it to the guy. But then what's happening is the seasoned fighter is also learning about the rookie's punch sequences, you know, and, 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 and movements and sequence of move, movements and the, the, the fighter, the, the veteran fighter, the seasoned fighter, you know, when the rookie throws three jabs with the left, you know, now the seasoned fighter knows, okay, three jabs, the right hook is coming. And the seasoned fighter knows, hey, that's not happening again. That right hook, that's not touching me again. You see? And then the ref continues in the count, you know, four, five, six, seven, and then the seasoned fighter stands up. Nods to the ref, you know, and... You know, I'm okay, you know, the, the ref makes sure, hey, you good? And okay, okay, the fighter's good. And the match continues. There's a whole lot of time left in just that round. But there's many rounds left. You see, the presumptuous victory from the rookie, it was foolish. And this is what I think about when I see Saul blowing the trumpet here, King Saul blowing the trumpet here. Because it's rather presumptuous. Because we see in verse 3 that, yes, there was a garrison of Philistines under attack, but it wasn't the larger body of the Philistines. The larger body, they heard about it. They heard about it. And it's not just they heard about it. Now they know that Israel is on the move. Now they know that Israel is on offense. And look what happens here in verse 4. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Very interesting what we see here in verse 4. Very interesting because Saul, he was in Michmash. Saul was in Michmash. And the garrison of Philistines, they were attacked by Jonathan. You see, it's true you could say, well, you know, the buck stops with Saul. You know, he's the king. And I get that. But we start to see the early stages of certain behavioral traits, behavioral traits in Saul, where he likes attention. He likes attention. He likes accolades. I mean, in verse 4, Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Saul wasn't even in country. You see, that was Jonathan. And so, uh, you know, we, we, you know, it's, it's like, say, say, for example, you and me, we're coworkers at a company. You and me, we're in the same department. We're in the same office space. And say you create something awesome, a brand, brand new doohickey. Okay. It's brand new. And you know, it's awesome. It helps our workflow and you know, it's just a beautiful piece of work and you made it. But then our supervisor goes to the executives and instead of saying, hey, look at, look, at, look at what my guy made or look at what my gal made. No, the supervisor goes to the executives and takes all the credit for something that you did. Supervisor says, hey, executives, check this out. Oh, yeah, I made it, you know, and, you know, I was working in my garage all night long and I made this and look how awesome I am. And, you know, all the, the executives are like, wow, you know, we got a good supervisor over here. And what, unbeknownst to them, no, he's crazy town. You made it. You made it, except the supervisor takes all the credit for it. You see? Now, it's true that in our department, the buck stops with our supervisor. But there are behavior traits that we notice in our supervisor. There are behavior traits that are just off. They're incongruent with righteousness. 
you see? And so what Israel knows of the battle that happened in Geba is that Saul had attacked the garrison, you see? But it was fake news because we know, no, that was Jonathan. You see, that was Jonathan. And you start to see these behavior traits. Oh, wait a second. This is a little bit off. You know why? Why is Saul doing that? Why is Saul behaving in this manner? But we see something else that's also happening. The news that was spreading. And we see here in verse 4, Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. Now, Remember that in Geba, yeah, it was, a, you know, a, a garrison of Philistines. But the larger body of Philistines, they heard about the garrison that was attacked. And they're not going to take it sitting down. They're not going to take it sitting down. And so what happens is King Saul, he arranges a gathering. And we see here that in, in, in uh, verse 4 that, you know, that, that they heard also that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Now, remember, the Philistines, they officially know at this particular juncture, they officially know that Israel is on the offense. They know that Israel is moving. And the Philistines, they, they've also taken casualties with the garrison in Giba. And so King Saul, he gathers in Gilgal. And there's a separate gathering. And so we see here in, in this separate gathering in verse 5. Then the Philistines. Remember, there was the garrison that was attacked and they took casualties in Giba. But that's a small, that was a detachment of the Philistines. There's more. And so in verse 5, the larger body of the Philistines, in verse 5, then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. You see, that's a whole lot of people. That's a lot of people. You see, Israel, they're on offense. And the Philistines officially know it. They took casualties in Geba. And Saul is blowing his horn, you know, he, 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 he's blowing the horn in round one, but there's a whole lot of fight left, a whole lot of fight left. And now the Philistines, they're also on offense, you see? And in verse five, and they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Evan, Beth Evan. Notice the Philistines assemble in Michmash, but then at the same time, you know, Saul was in Gilgal now. And very important to understand this layout of the battlefield. And so in verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed. Now, understandably so. Understandably so. Because the Philistines, they amassed a very, very large force. So large that in verse 5, that the people were as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. A lot of people. And so Israel, they were afraid. They were afraid. And it was so terrifying for Israel. Look what we see here in verse 6. In the, that the men of Israel, Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed. Then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. Whoa, you see? 
And in verse 7, and some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling, you see. In the Hebrew, it translates as all the people followed him. You know, they were straight up trembling. Translates as that they were in, shuddering in terror. Terror. Now, now you, you, you see what's happening here? I mean, you look at, look, at, look at this landscape of what is happening on the battlefield. But then look at the landscape of what is happening in, in the people, among the people. Where, you know, it's like that round one boxer. The round one boxer, okay, the, 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 the seasoned fighter falls on the ground, okay? The, 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 the rookie fighter got in a good, fight, a, good, a good punch, a good punch, you know, the, the right hook, you know? One, two, three jabs with the left, and boom, the right hook comes in. And the seasoned fighter falls to the ground. But then you see Saul, he's, he's blowing his horn like, hey, check this out, check this out. When there's a whole lot of fight left because the Philistines, what happened in Giba, that was a small detachment. I mean, you picture, like, say, for example, you take a, a large military force in, say, Los, Los Angeles, California, a large military force, the, 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 like, like the, 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 the main battle area is staged in Los Angeles, California. But then you go on the outskirts of Los Angeles, say you're in... Um, I don't, Lancaster, you're in Lancaster and there's a detachment of the force out in Lancaster. And so in Lancaster, they get overrun and they take casualties. And you, is that a time to celebrate? Is that a time to celebrate when the, the, the detachment, is, is that a, a time for the, the opposition to celebrate? No, because A, the entire force is in Los Angeles. And it's only a matter of time before that, that larger body, that larger military force says, okay, you know, we're going to handle business. It's only a matter of time. And that's what's happening. You see, Israel goes on the move and Israel goes to fight. And yeah, you know, with Jonathan, they're effective in Giba. And then you see Saul, he's like, you know, hey, you know, Israel, you know, we won. But then at the same time, like, wait a second, the larger body of the Philistines, they hear about it. They find out what's happening and they're not going to take it sitting down. And so they send their people, they send, you know, uh, uh, like the sand, you know, I mean, you go to the beach and you see the sand. Well, that's, that was the people, you know, the sandwiches on the seashore in multitude, a whole lot of people. And it's not just people, you get the chariots, the horsemen, and they're ready to fight. They're ready to fight. And Israel, they were terrified. They were terrified. We see in verse six that they hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in the pits. And it was, they were so afraid that they crossed over the Jordan. They went, you remember with, with you know, they, end, they, they crossed the Jordan to enter the promised land. Remember when Moses tells them, old man Moses in Deuteronomy says, you know, these are the conditions by which you cross over. But then at the same time, you see Israel, they're going, they're like fleeing. That's how terrified they were. And Saul, he's in Gilgal, Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. We see in verse seven. Now, I want to say something about leadership. I want to say something about covering and holy formula. Make sure it's right. Make sure it's right. Because what we see happening here, it's something that plays out over and over and over and over in the Old Testament. Leadership matters. 
It's something that we see played out in the New Testament. Not according to the flesh, but we see it according to the Spirit in the New Testament. And it's something that plays out even still today. And in the last days, it's going to be very intense. And we see it now. It's already happening today where it's intensifying. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's intensifying and it's becoming kinetic. For such a time as this, it's becoming kinetic, where it is now entering the carnal realm, the realm of man, according to the flesh. You see, this is something that we touched on several weeks ago in our study in Mark. Remember where we mentioned the spider and the bear? Remember, if you're listening for the first time, go and listen to our study through the book of Mark. Very important to understand. It's very true that demons and unclean spirits can leave a person. And it's very true that these are moments of victory for an individual believer. But it's also victory for a church body when demons and unclean spirits, when they leave a person. But it's not a time to presumptuously celebrate as if the fight is over. I mean, there is celebration in terms of, you know, freedom in Christ. But at the same time, understand, it's not a presumptuous celebration because what happens? Those demons, they're going to return. The evil spirits return and they don't come back alone. They come back with other demons that are much worse than them. You see, this is exactly, precisely what Jesus tells us. And we studied this in the book of Mark. Where, remember with the spiders and the grizzly bear where little spider leaves? Little spider leaves, and it's not a time to celebrate, like as if the fight is over. We can rejoice, absolutely rejoice, because freedom in Christ is a beautiful thing. It's, It's beautiful, but the fight is far from over, far from over. Little spider, what happens? Little spider leaves. Little spider goes to his friends, and his friends are not spiders. You see, he has seven friends who are grizzly bears, so it's eight that return, seven grizzlies and a little spider. Who can fight against that? Who can fight against that? I mean, defeating a spider is a piece of cake, you know? Step on it, you know, flick it, you know? But you can't do that. You can't can't flick a grizzly bear. You cannot flick a grizzly bear. I mean, one grizzly bear, you can't do that, let alone seven more. Who can fight against that? You see? Now remember, victory for the believer. Victory is absolutely assured absolutely it is written we have promises in the lord where victory is absolutely assured but it's always 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 within very specific confines of extremely specific blueprints it's called the formula the holy recipe and when you see like former christians who are straight up psychotic Psychos and they're former Christians and they're straight up loco. Now, straight up crazy town. And sometimes you see it with people who still they claim to be Christians, but they're straight up crazy town. Now, understand what's happening in the pneumos. Understand what's happening in the pneumos in the spirit realm where a Christian could have been just fine. Just fine. Freed in Jesus, freedom in Christ, and praise the Lord. This is a good thing. But what happens is that Christians submit themselves to the wrong pastor. 
the wrong pastor in whom the formula was wrong. And then the Christian wasn't taught to fight. The Christian wasn't taught or shown how to fight or wasn't equipped to fight. The Christian does not have understanding. And so where the little spider left at the get-go, and that's a beautiful thing. We can rejoice, absolutely, but we cannot celebrate as if the war is over. And little spider had left, and that's good. But little spider came back, and not alone. Little spider came back with his friends. Grizzly number one, grizzly number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven, a total of eight demons. Straight up demons. And little spider, you know, like, like, like a little demon, you see? But the little demon has more friends that are worse. Not a little spider, now seven grizzlies, a total of eight. And what happens is the Christian becomes psycho, multiple personalities, behavior changes that reflect the little spider because the spider came back. But even more, grizzly number one, grizzly number two, grizzly number three, four, five, six, seven. A total of eight. Do you ever see personality disorders in the church? I mean, we see it in the world. I mean, you see personality changes all over in the, in the world. I mean, you know, Corinth is Corinth. The world is the world. You see personality changes all over the place in the world. But when you look at the church, when you look inside the church, and you look at Christians, the bipolars, schizophrenia, understand what's happening in the pneumos. Remember, the pneumos is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. I mean, it's very beautiful when the formula is right, but it's also very dangerous. And if the formula is wrong in a person, if the holy recipe, the holy formula is wrong in a person, in the pneumos, that person is going to lose. It's only a matter of time. That person is going to lose. You see? And you see in the church where you see Christians who are crazy. Christians are straight up psycho, psychotic. Sometimes they, they're in the church and they claim to be Christians or sometimes, you know, they've left the church because they're straight up psycho. I mean, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, 60, 70 years ago, we could have this exact same study. 50 years ago, we could have this exact same study and would have to wonder about it. Would have to wonder what things would look like in their manifestation. Would have to wonder, well, you know, okay, the pneumos, okay, we get the, the Greek says this, the Hebrew says this, Aramaic says this, Septuagint, you know, this. And 50 years ago, we'd have to wonder, okay, I think this could play out like this. I think, okay, we kind of have to, you know, look at these, you know, Old Testament examples and understand, okay, we can see culture, society, it might look like this, it might turn out like this. But today, we don't have to wonder what these things would look like. We don't have to wonder when the, when the pneumos breaches into the carnal realm, when it becomes kinetic. We don't have to wonder. You know why? Because we see it. We see it all over the place. We absolutely see it in the world. But what's happening now is that we see it in the church. We see it inside the church. Understand the formula, holy formula, that holy recipe for us as believers. But if you and me were to find the church, we'd have to look at the pastor. 
We'd have to look at the elders, the overseer, and make sure the formula is right. We'd have to look at the fellowship and make sure the formula is right. Always accounting for babies. Always accounting for babies. Always exercising mercy and grace and love. Always exercising these things. But remember in the pastoral epistles when Titus, when Paul writes to Titus, you know, warning one, warning two, and there is no warning three. Remember? Warning one, warning two, and there is no warning three. It's straight up warning one, warning two. Okay, now you identify the leaven. Very important to understand. Because the flock of God, the Christians, the believers, they have to be safe. They have to be safe to exercise these things that we learn about, these, this, these, this holy recipe that we learn about in Scripture. Christians have to be safe. Bearing one another's burdens, that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing for Christians to bear one another's burdens. But what happens when the person's burdens are like sexual in nature? Say you have a... Uh, a uh, 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 a sex addict, a sex addict. Now you take a a a a, a, a female, say like a a, a a thirty year old sex addict, and then you have like a a a, a fifteen year old uh, younger sister. So you have a, a, a thirty year old sex addict, and then a a, a, a fifteen year old a, a, a younger sister in Christ. So you have those two, and in inside the church. The sex addict has repented of her sins as is inside the church and is learning and growing. And yeah, there's going to be these addictions. But at the same time, with sound, when the formula is right, with sound doctrine, you know, love feasts and the gifts of the spirit and the body, the remnant caring for the remnant. What we're going to see is, wow, those addictions, all of a sudden, they don't become addictions anymore. All of a sudden, with this 30-year-old, it's so beautiful because... Not only is she born again, but she's learning to walk again. Just like a just like a carnal baby, you know? A baby is born and mama has to hold the baby. But then the baby crawls and then, you know, the baby stands and then the baby walks and then the baby runs. It's the same thing in the life of a believer where now the 30-year-old, wow, is no longer a sex head. No longer, you know, given over to the sexual addictions. And it's so beautiful because the 15-year-old now can, can, can bear her burdens. You see? And the 30-year-old can bear the 15-year-old's burdens, you see? And it's so beautiful because that's when growth and maturity, and that's when we see things in Scripture where, you know, when Paul and Peter, you know, such were some of you, past tense. We're like five years, 10 years deep in the former sex head, you know, such were some of you. And that person can rejoice like, you know what? Yeah, I was a sex head. You know, when I was 30, yeah, I was a sex head. And the person can rejoice like, wow, it's so beautiful to be, to be washed and to be cleansed and be pure before the Lord. Like, wow, you know, that such were some of you, past tense, in the history born into Adam and the works of the flesh. And you can see the believers bearing one another's burdens. That's a beautiful thing. And the formula must be right in a church fellowship with overseers in whom the formula is right. Always accounting for babies, exercising mercy, exercising grace. But now let's flip the coin. What happens 
if the formula is wrong in a pastor. And you take that exact same scenario where, you know, the, 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 the sex head becomes a Christian and is in the church with a pastor where the formula is wrong. And yeah, bearing one another, uh, bearing one another's burdens. Okay, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a biblical truth. Okay, so we're going to bear one another's burdens. But what happens when the pastor teaches milk? Feeds milk. There's no depth. I mean, it's like, you know, milk is beautiful, but milk is for babies. And so you have baby Christians who don't learn to make that separation and make that distinction between things of the spirit and things of the flesh. And the former sex head has, you know, doesn't become a former sex head. The former sex head stays a sex head and battles with these tendencies of the flesh. Now, do you know how dangerous that is for the 15-year-old younger sister to bear the burdens of that 30-year-old? Do you know how dangerous it is? Instead of the 30-year-old walking and coming into righteousness, what happens is the 15-year-old starts walking according to the flesh if she were to bear those burdens. You see how dangerous that is? And then you, you have the pastors in whom the formula is wrong. Where the, oh yeah, we're just supposed to love everybody. Let's just love everybody. And you know, we'll let, we'll let God take care of the rest. Listen, if you have a pastor like that, oh, we're just going to love on everybody and let God take care of the rest. You know, when God takes care of things, it's judgment. Judgment comes first to the church. You see? Where a pastor, you know, in, in Titus, there's Warning one, warning two, and there is no warning three. You see? Very important to understand. It's very true that we're to be loving. And a pastor in whom the formula is right can say, Hey, come over here, sister. I want to talk to you. Hey, sister, you know, I know that you were saved from this lifestyle and I rejoice, you know, praise the Lord that you were saved from this lifestyle and we're going to help you. We're going to teach you and I'm going to pour into you and I'm going to teach you the ways of righteousness. But these things of the carnal nature, these are things that I'm noticing in your life. With the sex and, you know, all these guys that are hanging around you, these are things that I'm noticing. And since these things are happening, you know, we're going to have communion and hey, don't take communion. Don't take communion because if you take communion and, you know, these are the things of the flesh. If you take communion and the formula in you is wrong. No, that's not good for you. It's not good for you because the Bible says some people become sick and some people have died. It's not good for you. It's not good for the church. Because a little leaven leavens the bunch. Now, I know you have these addictions and all these things, but come on, let's get you cleaned up. Let's repent of these things. Let's repent of these things and let's do away with those things. You see? So you see, there's grace, there's mercy, there's love. There's the means by which forgiveness can happen, you know, so that all of us can be clean and pure before the Lord. And there's a little tap. Like, hey, that's not a good thing. You know, like, hey, you know, communion? No, don't partake of it this week. Unless you're, you know, you get pure before the Lord. You're clean before the Lord. And here, come on, let's get you cleaned up. Let's repent so that we can be clean. Together, let's be clean before the Lord. And what happens is, yeah, you know, there, there's, a, there's that little chastisement where like, ooh, that hurts. Like, you know, 
that that's painful. I mean, put yourself in in the in the sex head's position. Like, oh, you know, that's painful. You know, because this 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 pastor called me on it. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm walking according to the flesh, and this pastor called me on it. But he calls me on it. But it's not like you know what? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? He calls me on it, but it's kind of odd because it's like loving. <laughs> And now the sex head can say, you know what? You're right. You're right. I need to repent. You see? And the 15-year-old girl can, can bear those burdens. Because the 15-year-old girl can help her walk in the ways of righteousness. A 20-year-old female can help her, you know, with those burdens. A male can help with those burdens. But do you know how dangerous it is for a male to bear the burdens of the sex head female. You know how dangerous that is? It's super dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. But when the formula is right in a church fellowship, straight up love feast, remember in Christ, there is no male, there is no female, remember? Because we are one in Christ. That's why we stress formula. I mean, for other reasons too. Because we're living in a time well, we're not dealing with little spiders anymore. We're not dealing with little spiders anymore. Those are easy. The grizzlies are returning. The grizzlies are coming back. And the grizzlies are fierce. They know their time is short. You see? So yes, there's the aspect of church fellowship and making sure that the formula is right. But when the formula is right... Understand what you have. That you have effectual. You have like book of Acts. You have a church like the book of Acts. When the formula is right in a church body, love feast. Not, you know, people say, oh yeah, we have love feast. We have love feast. And oh yeah, we're going to have a picnic and love feast over here. And, you know, come on, let's, let's go grave soaking. Oh yeah, we're going to have love feast and love feast. Oh, did you see this TV show where, they, you know, they have the sex and do all these things? They have the, did you see this movie where they do all the cursing? They have the, the cuss words. Oh, did you see this movie where they do the occult and, oh yeah, you know, great movie, great movie. Oh, never mind the sex. That's okay. You can't call that love feast. You cannot call that love feast. Why? Because the formula is wrong. When I'm talking about love feast, we're talking about straight up the book of Acts. A church like the book of Acts. And Satan, Satan knows what that church looks like. And he fights tooth and nail to destroy that church, to break up that church, and to separate that church. And he's very effective in battle. If you have a pastor, if you have a pastor the likes of Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, Calvinist pastor, Reformed pastors, New Apostolic Reformation pastors, Saddleback pastors, Hillsong pastors. Listen, I love you. But when the multiple grizzlies come, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. Because the spiders, they're easy. Multiple spiders, easy. And that's not said in an arrogant way that they're easy. But in comparison to what's coming, in comparison to what has arrived, in comparison to what's going to get much worse when the Grizzlies come out and play, it's serious business. Serious, serious business. You see? 
Because we already see these behavioral shifts in society at large. And these behavioral shifts in society, it's causing cultural shifts. And the manifestation of these grizzlies, it's not just a personality change. I mean, just, just, just last week, just last week, you know, a playground, a beautiful playground, nice sunny day. Moms at the playground, they take their kids to the playground. Oh, look, what a nice, a nice sunny day. You know, they take their kids to the park. Nice, lovely day, sunny. You know, it's nice and sunny. They take the strollers out. You know, you got the kids and they're playing at the park. You know, lovely, lovely day. The kids can play. Everything is nice. You know what happened just last week? You know what happened? In the manifestation of the Grizzlies, there was a man who went on a rampage. And he goes on the rampage and he started stabbing kids with a knife. Even kids in strollers. He started stabbing them. You see? I mean, we could look at, you know, behavioral changes when, when the grizzlies come. But when it goes kinetic, when it enters the realm of the flesh. Because in the pneumos, there's always been kinetic exposure. But in these last days, the grizzlies are coming out. It's their time. And it is prophesied that it will be given unto them. It will be given unto Satan to prevail against the saints. And it's already happening. We can see it happening. Very important to understand. If you have a pastor that's oh, let's just love on everybody and, you know, oh, we'll let God take care of the rest. Understand what you're looking at. That's a pastor that's not preparing you for straight up combat. Not according to the flesh. Not according to the rules of engagement of the old covenant. But of the new covenant. A fierce, fierce war. You see? And a pastor, you know, very important because we are called to love. We are called to be forgiving and gracious and merciful. But the blueprints are very specific Overseers, the blueprints for overseers, very, very specific. Warning one, warning two, and there is no warning three. And yet you see pastors that are putting up with the flesh, putting up with the carnal nature. Very important. And it's not to say like there can't be anything of the flesh because we all wrestle with the flesh. Every single one of us, we all wrestle with the flesh in various degrees. I mean, you know, you could look at, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, somebody who's, you know, uh, when, when, when a person wrestles with the flesh, it's not like it was five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. That's what happens when a person is growing and maturing in Christ. I mean, you know, you could say like, okay, I need to repent of this. And then a person is like, wait, what? Like, you know, that's no big deal. You know, like you're driving in your car and somebody cuts you off and you grumble. You're like, Ugh. you know, you're, you're just driving along your way. And then all of a sudden somebody cuts you off and you have to hit the brakes a little bit. And you're just like, Ugh. just that. That's all, that's all you do. Like, Ugh. you don't cuss, you don't, you know, you don't do anything. It's just, you're just a little frustration. But then once you park your car, you bow your head, you close your eyes, you know, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Yeah, I grumbled and I didn't like that I was cut off. But Lord, forgive me. You know, maybe the driver was late for something. 
maybe the driver's a jerk, you know, but, you know, I don't know, you know, why is he a jerk? You know, I wonder what his childhood was like, you know, <laughs> you know, because he was a beautiful baby at one point, you know, what is he like? What, what happened in his life? And Lord, I just want to pray for him. Lord, I pray that you soften his heart so that he's not that way anymore and soften my heart because I don't want to be this way. I don't want to grumble like this anymore. And then, you know, in Jesus name, amen. And then you go and talk to another brother. You go and talk to another sister. It's like, yeah, you know, sorry, I'm, you know, two minutes late. Sorry, I'm five minutes late. I had to repent. I had to repent because, you know, I grumbled. You know, I hadn't, I, 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 you know, somebody cut me off and I just grumbled and I just had to repent. You know what's going to happen? That other brother, that other sister is going to be like, what, what do you repent of that? I just, I cuss people out all the time. Why do you got to repent for that? You see? Very important for all of us, you and me, we have to be clean before the Lord. We have to be pure before the Lord. And that can't be forced on anybody. Every single one of us, we have a choice to make for ourselves. And Christians are going to think you're crazy. Christians are going to think you're crazy. Why? You don't have to repent for that. You don't have to repent. You, You grumbled. You don't have to repent for that. Oh, why are, you, why are you such a legalist? You don't have to repent for that. But you're also going to see something reflected in their lives. Zero, zero effectuation. That's what you're going to see in their lives. And they're going to call God sovereign without yielding to the sovereign. Oh, you don't have to repent for that because, you know, once saved, always saved. You don't have to repent for that. You're good to go. And then they're going to make fun of you. Oh, you're such a legalist. You're such a legalist. Oh, you think you're better than us? You think you're better than me? They're going to say that. And it's all fine. You know, listen, it's, it, it's, it, it's going to be hurtful. And everything is, it's going to seem like it's no big deal to them. And it's status quo when it's the spiders. Status quo when it's the spiders. the spiders are coming back with their friends and their friends are grizzlies and you're going to start to see and it's already happening you're going to start to see when the formula is wrong in them you're going to see these behavior changes like wow that he's a little crankier than normal wow she's she's crankier than normal you see because before it was the spiders. But now the grizzlies come. It's going to be bad. You see? It's going to be so prophetically speaking. Satan will prevail against the saints. Prophetically speaking. Satan, the demons, the, the spiders and the grizzlies. They're going to win. It's not in perpetuity. It's for a short period of time, but they're going to have their, their moment. They're going to have their victories and they will prevail against the saints. It's going to escalate. It's going to intensify and it's going to grow worse. Where in the worlds are, where are the shepherds? Where are the shepherds? Where in the world are the pastors? Where? 
You say, wait a second, but we have them. Look, we got a pastor over here. We got a pastor over there. We got a couple over here. We got multitudes over there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's exactly like the book of Judges. You see? Yeah, we got the priests, but look at them. Yeah, we got the pastors, but look at them. It's exactly like the book of Judges when the Lord became forgotten and everyone was doing right in his own eyes. You see, nothing new under the sun. Very important to understand. And so we look at this, our study here in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. And we see Israel have victory over a garrison, much like the little spider. Much like the little spider. But now we have the grizzlies in Michmash. You see? Very important to understand how we look at the Old Testament and New Testament. The old interpreting the new, the new interpreting the old. Because we see the very thing with the spiders and the grizzlies that we studied in the book of Mark. New Covenant. New Testament. But we use that to interpret the old here in the Old Covenant. You're in the Old Testament. And exactly what we see here in chapter 13 with the, the spiders in Giba. But then we have the grizzlies in Michmash. You see? They come back. Very important to understand. Old interpreting new, new interpreting old. And with that, we get the full counsel of God. Understanding his ways, understanding his blueprints, understanding his formula so that you and me can walk safely on the narrow path. Very important to understand. Israel has victory over this garrison in Giba, just like the little spider. And in Michmash, the grizzlies. And King Saul is in Gilgal. Now, let's see what happens in verse 8. <clears throat> Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Now, remember, the people, they're shuddering in terror. They're scared. What's happening in Michmash is the people, they're already running away. They're already hiding. The, the, the same thing is happening in Gilgal. So it, it, it's, it's the Israel, they're afraid. Remember Saul? He blew his horn. Hey, check this out. He blew his horn at, at Giba. He blew his horn. It's just like that first round. You know, the, 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 the rookie fighter. It's just like the first round celebrating. Hey, look, I won, I won, I won. But no. No, it wasn't a 10 count. You see? And we're just in the first round. There's more fight. And we see here in verse 8, what happens is Saul, he gets a little impatient. Now, look at these behavior traits we see in Saul. Look at these behavior traits. Remember, he's, he's taking credit because, you know, oh, Saul, he, 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 entered, he entered Giba and he defeated Giba and, and the fake news was spreading and he's taking credit for it. Just like the supervisor. Remember the supervisor example? He's, the supervisor stole your idea and taking credit for all of it. The, 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 the executives, they think, wow, you know, we got a good supervisor. Yeah, let, let's promote him. Let's promote him. And hey, you, they, you did that. That was you. You made that. That was you built that in your garage. The supervisor taking credit and saying like, wow, you know, he's, he's a little bit off this supervisor. The ways of righteousness are not in him. You see? 
And we see this the in these behavior traits of Saul, the king, he's getting impatient. And we already know that things are off in Saul. Things are off because he has a problem with presumption. He has a problem with presumption. Remember, he's, he's taking credit and he, he presumed to have one. Hey, check this out. Check this out. Victory, victory, victory. Resting laurels on past victory. You see? No, we cannot rest laurels on past victory. We can rejoice in past victory, but, you know, when we rest our laurels, you know what? We're going to be dead. Rest your laurels when you're dead. You know, when you take, you know, when you're dying, when you're on your deathbed in whatever way, shape, or form that comes. But, you know, the Lord knows the number of our days. And, you know, when you rest your laurels, you know, you take your last exhale. You know, you're an old man, you're an old woman, you know, and you, and you breathe your last that's when you rest your, your laurels. But until then, no, we're straight up fighting until the very end. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Rest your laurels at your last dying breath. But until that day comes, no. Even, you know, you're 10 breaths away from your last dying breath. No, don't rest your laurels. Rest your laurels at, you know, you're in the hospital. You hear the, 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 the machine, you know, the beep, beep, beep. And then all of a sudden, you know, you exhale, and then the machine, the long extended one. Now, okay, now you can officially rest your laurels. No, you're done. You see? But until that day comes, now we're fighting. Straight up warriors. I mean, it's on. And for my older brothers and sisters, you're like, man, you know, this guy's talking like, you know, I'm a warrior and here I am in a wheelchair. This guy's talking like I'm like I'm a warrior. He wants me to be a warrior. But, you know, here I am. My, my, you know, I don't have my legs. I'm an old, you know, old, you know, Korean war veteran and I don't have my arms. I don't have my legs. Or, you know, you're uh, old lady, you know, you can't get up anymore. No, those are some of the best warriors. You know why? Prayer. Prayer. Fasting before the Lord. Praying before the Lord. Feeding on the word of God. It's not fasting, you know, you know, intermittent fasting. It's none of that. It's not, you know, I'm going to fast, you know, so I can, you know, you know, drop the calories. No, 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 no. It's fasting so that we can feed on the word of God. The Lord knows motives. The Lord knows people, you know, oh, I'm fasting, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. You know, sometimes Christians, you know, oh, I'm fasting. They like to broadcast it. Oh, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. Oh, look at me. Look how awesome I am. When really the motive behind it is to drop calories. You see? Drop, you know, caloric intake. Oh, yeah, I gotta, you know, I'm gonna fast over, you know, today and tomorrow. I'm gonna fast and intermittent fasting, do all these things. And they, you know, do all these things for the, the so called health benefits. And then they go tell the brothers and sisters in Christ, oh, yeah, I'm fasting. I'm fasting. Look how holy I am. And they might fool the Christians. But the Lord knows motives. The Lord knows motives. He tests the heart. He knows. And when you and me fast, and the motives are right. The motives are pure. And you have effectuation. These are things that happen in love feast. In our remnant. You see? Always accounting for babies in the, a remnant fellowship. Straight up love feast. And Satan. The book of Acts. A church like we see in the book of Acts. Satan doesn't look, look at look at the opposition that get, I mean if you've been walking with us for a while you remember our study in the book of Acts and they're archived already but our study in the book of Acts go and listen to the study it's very important because you'll see churches 
Not churches like, you know, a big, you know, building on the street corner. No, what it is, home fellowships. That's the church, the, the book of Acts. That's the early church. You know what they call the church? People of the way. That's what they call the early church. People of the way. They weren't called Christians yet. They called them the people of the way. And that's a church like the book of Acts. And then you have pastors today. They teach, oh, yeah, the church like the book of Acts. That was for 2,000 years ago, give or take a couple years. It's not for today. And the Christians ask the pastor, oh, pastor, why, why is that? Why is it that the church today doesn't have the power and the moving and the gifts of the spirit like we see in the book of Acts? Why is it that we don't have the prophets like we see in the, remember Agabus in the book of Acts? Why, hey, pastor, why is it that we don't see that today? And then the pastor, you know, the suit and tie and everything with his degrees on the wall, well, we don't have that today, son. We don't have that today because, and he goes on to explain it was for another dispensation. It was for another dispensation. And then they use all these big words. Well, you know, it was for another dispensation because in this dispensation, according to this, and you know what the real, real reason is? Wrong formula. That's the real reason. Wrong formula. Wrong formula in that pastor. Wrong formula in that fellowship. And so you don't see effectuation of God's promises. Remember, God never changes. Elohim, in the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim, the triune nature of God. In the beginning, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it is written, He never changes. He never changes. And then you have these pastors today saying, Oh yeah, He changed. The Bible says God never changes. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit never changes. And pastors today, Oh yeah, He changed. He changed, he, you know, the, 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 the spirit, you know, that was for that dispensation. It's not for today. No, what happens in those pastors, if they ever had the spirit, they extinguished the spirit. They quenched the spirit, which translates in the Greek. Quenching the spirit translates as extinguishing the spirit. The Bible forbids that. Don't do that. What happens? They did that. If they ever had the spirit. Very important to understand. And so we see these behavior traits in Saul. King Saul, we see these behavior traits where he's getting, you know, he has these problems, these behavior traits. Where Remember, he, he, he accepted the fake news. He took all the credit for Giba, the victory in Giba. He took all the credit for it. And not only that, he sounded the trumpet. Oh, you know, check this out. Oh, look, we have victory over here. But now, you know, taking victory for the spiders. Taking victory for the spiders. And it's, it's one thing to rejoice when, for the spiders. But to claim victory in terms of the war being over? No, 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 no. Far from over. Remember, for you and me, we have victory. And we can claim victory. And we can rejoice in victory. But there are millions of battles in our lives. You see? Understand. Our, when, when, we, when we can officially like rest our laurels, remember, the last dying breath. And until then, no, we're getting it on. No, we're fighters, you see, warriors. And so Saul, we start to see these behavior traits in King Saul, like, wow, that's, that's a little, just like the supervisor. It's a little off. And not just a little off, but it is incongruous with the ways of righteousness, you see? And so we see in verse 9, remember, so Saul says here in verse 9, so Saul says, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. So now we have the burnt offering and everything seems fine. And in verse 10, look what happens. Now it happened. As soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, 
That's Samuel came. Samuel the prophet. Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Look what we have here. Oh, nice, nice little greeting. Everything seems fine. But look what happens in verse 11. And Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? He says, what have you done? And it seems odd. It seems odd. Oh, Samuel, Samuel, don't be so mean. Come on. Oh, Samuel, look, he's so mean. We're at the precipice of battle. The enemy has amassed and assembled. And look, we got the burnt offering. Look, the king is greeting the prophet. Oh, Samuel, don't be so mean. Saul's just greeting you. And Samuel has the, the nerve to ask, what have you done? What have you done? Oh, you know, like, don't be so mean-spirited, Samuel. You see, what Samuel is privy to, Samuel the prophet, what he's privy to is formula. Formula. He knows all about holy formula. He knows all about the holy recipe. And he has a deep intimacy with the Lord. See, with carnal eyes, with carnal eyes, Samuel the prophet appears to be in the wrong. Like, you know, you know look, we got, the, we, got the, we got the offering, the king, he comes to greet you. And you ask, you know, what have you done? As if, you know, as if, as if Saul the king is in the wrong. And with carnal eyes, it's Samuel. He appears to be wrong. But with you and me and eyes to see, we know Samuel, he's the one who's in the right. And Saul is the one who's in the wrong. And this isn't about being right for argument's sake. It's about all of Israel being right before the Lord, being pure before the Lord, under very specific blueprints of the old covenant. You see? And for you and me, it's exactly the same. A little, little, little different in one regard. It's not about being right for argument's sake. It's about all of the church, all of Christians, all of believers, all the saints being right before the Lord, being pure before the Lord under very specific blueprints of the new covenant. You see, very important to understand. And so Samuel, he asked Saul straight up, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and then, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Now, very interesting. Now look at these behavior traits that we see in the King already in King Saul. Look at these behavioral traits, but now we can add to the list of these behavioral traits that are inconducive with the ways of righteousness. You know what that is? No ownership. No ownership. Because Samuel the prophet asks, what have you done? And what the king does, King Saul, he points the finger at everyone but himself. Look at, you know, look at, look at the verse. Look at the verse. And verse, you know, what have you done? And then Saul said, he takes no ownership. He points the finger at everyone else but himself. It was the people. No, no, it was you, Samuel. You were late. No, no, it was the Philistines. You see, no ownership. No owner. You ever talk to people like this? You ever talk to people like this? Straight up. They blame everybody but themselves. Everybody but themselves. It's We see it across all sectors of society. People who have been coddled, coddled from the consequences of their own choices. And then you see people, they make excuses for their own choices. 
Now, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves in our studies. I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. But what we're going to see in our studies in the Old Testament, what we're going to see, the introduction of David, King David. We're going to see his introduction pretty soon. Not to get ahead too much, but we're going to see that. And we're going to see something beautiful in him. We're going to see something ugly in him too. But we're going to see in David that we're going to see that he also, David, he also gets confronted by a prophet of God about something that David had done. Just as Samuel confronts Saul, we're going to see Nathan, the prophet, confront David. And you're going to see something beautiful in David, even with the ugly. David, he doesn't play the blame game like Saul does. He doesn't play the, oh, it was this guy, it was this guy, it was this guy, it was Israel. No, it was you, Nathan. No, David doesn't do that. David takes ownership. But it's not taking ownership in a prideful way. He takes ownership in humility, the utmost humility. When David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, there's no blame game. He doesn't, oh, it, it, it was this guy's fault. It was her fault. It was his fault. It was their fault. It was this. No, you know what David says? You're right. You're right. I have sinned before the Lord. You see, David straight up takes ownership even when it hurts. You're right. And they said, you know, you are that man. You're right. I am that man. And I am dirty before the Lord. I am unclean before the Lord. I have sinned before the Lord. And you know what David does? He repents. So beautiful. Saul, you don't see that. He doesn't take ownership. He points the finger at everybody else but himself. He even points it at Samuel. It's your fault, Samuel. You were late. You see? So beautiful. And that's the humble heart. It helps us. The humble heart, it will help you. When a heart is soft, it helps you humble yourself before the Lord so that we can continue to say humble before the Lord. And when, you know, in the past, say, say for example, you and me are in church. You and me are in a church fellowship and we're in a church fellowship where the formula is right. Tiny church. It's not going to be a big church. It's not going to be the mega church. It's a small church. And say, for example, you and me, we start to fight. Not physically. We just have a little... A, 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 a little kerfuffle. You and me, we're in a little kerfuffle. And then the pastor comes. Hey, what's happening? That's not right. And then I say, oh, but this person, you, you did this. And then you say, oh, but you did this. And, you know, we're just, we keep going. We're bickering, bickering, bickering. And then the pastor says, why not let, let yourself be cheated? He looks at me. Why not let yourself be cheated? And then he looks at you, why not let yourself be cheated? Because it is written, why not let yourself be cheated? And then we realize we kind of pause, look down a little bit, we kind of pause, we think about it. Hey, he's got a point. He's right. He's right. But because of humility, because our hearts are soft, we're like David. Wow, he's right. He's right. Forgive me, Lord. And then we can repent. The pastor says, hey, come on, let's get you cleaned up. 
we repent and we embrace, hey, you know, we're, we're not bickering anymore. No more kerfuffle. We're right before the Lord. We're pure before the Lord. The pastor says, hey, come on, let's go get a burger. Let's go get a burger. Let's fellowship. You see how the humble heart, it helps us. And that's what we want hearts to be softer than the softest jello. You see? But then you see Christians where you see like, well, something's off in that guy. Something's off in that gal. Well, the pastor, you know, you say that same example. You and me, we're fighting the little kerfuffle that we have and we're fighting, we're arguing. And then the pastor comes, oh, you know, I'm just going to love on you and let God take care of the rest. I'm just going to love on you. And then you see pastors who like, you know, they, 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 they force, they force love. They attempt to force love. Hey, this isn't good, so don't do that. Hey, why don't you, you know, embrace, you know, make up, you know, embrace and, you know, say, you know, like, I forgive you, I forgive you and whatever, you know, and say all these things. But that thorn is still there. The thorn hasn't been erased. The thorn is still there and that thorn is going to fester, you see, and then the thorn becomes leaven. Then, you know, the next week's fellowship, we meet and we're fighting in the parking lot because that thorn was never erased. There we are fighting in the parking lot. We're going to blows in the parking lot because the thorn festered. It's become leaven. You see what happens? And it just grows. It becomes worse. Or, you know, here we are. We're bickering. And then the pastor says, you know, hey, you know, uh, don't do that. Don't do that. And the formula in him is wrong. You know, he got in a, in a fight in the parking lot the previous week and we're just following his example because the Bible says the pastors are the example. The pastors are the pattern for emulation. Remember our studies through the epistles? And so we're just doing like him. You see? Or say, for example, you know, my little feelers get hurt. So I just say, you know what? I'm going to leave this church and I'm going to go to this church over here where the, the pastor's going to whisper sweet nothings in my ear. I'm going to have this problem with the flesh, the problem with the carnal nature. I'm going to be leaven, but I'm going to go to this pastor over here. You see? That's what happens in churches when the formula is wrong. But when the formula is right, you have effectuation of so many beautiful things. And this is straight up book of Acts. When the formula is right among a We say church, but it's a fellowship of believers. Because a lot of times, and this is, you know, I have had these conversations very recently with believers. And when believers think of church, they think of like, you know, a, a, a building, a formal building with the cross on the top and the little steeple or, you know, all these things. Okay, the church, you know, this is the church. This is the church. No, 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 no. There were no, no steeples in, in the book of Acts. Very important to understand. And Christians today, they have a hard time with, okay, the church, you know, got to have the church building, got to have the pews, got to have the, no, no. The church is a gathering of believers, a gathering of saints. You see, it could be under a tree. It can be in a home. It could be under a bridge. And where two or more are gathered, our Lord is there. Very important to understand. I've been in fellowships of 14,000 people and in a fellowship of two. And where the Lord was, it would blow you away. It would blow. If I were to describe to you certain things, certain effectuations, if I were to describe that to you, it would blow you away. 
you would desire the tiny church. And that's the book of Acts. You see, Satan knows all about this. Satan, he knows it. And he knows that strategically on this battlefield of the pneumos, he knows that, wait, churches like the book of Acts? No, that's not happening. Look at, look at the opposition that came against the church in the book of Acts. You see? You see how he fights? He fights dirty. Satan fights dirty. But we also fight. Very specific blueprints. We also fight. You see? And so King Saul, he's playing the blame game. He points the finger at everybody but himself. He takes no ownership. Oh, it's your fault. It's, oh, it was these conditions. Hey, why don't you just fess up, Saul? Why don't you take ownership, Saul? You see? And look at what King Saul says to Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, in verse 12. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down to me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Remember, earlier in the chapter, he blew his horn and he was celebrating. And now the grizzlies have come. Very effective fighters. And everybody is scared. Utter terror, how it translates in the Hebrew. And what Saul does, it has the appearance of something right. Remember, in the earlier chapters, the Spirit of God was upon him. He's the anointed king. He wants to make supplication to the Lord. And he even offers a burnt offering. And it has the appearance of something right. And very recently, I had a conversation with the so-called theologian, a Calvinist. And this so-called theologian, you know, here in verse 12, Saul was compelled, you see. And let me tell you something. If you're a Calvinist, if you reformed, okay, so Saul was compelled. We see that in verse 12 here. But compelled by what? Compelled by what? Because it is written that, you know, there is certainly no unrighteousness with God. It is written. So what is Saul compelled by, O learned theologians? You see, what is Saul compelled by? Very important. If you haven't listened to the study called The Marathon, go and listen to the study called The Marathon. Because there are false doctrines that are spreading and they're spreading like wildfire in these last days. These false doctrines that say, hey, God set them. It's a setup job. God is making people sin. God makes them sin because they're predestined to, to, to hell. And so God is making them sin so that, to achieve that end. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's idolatry. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. Very important. Listen to the study called the marathon. If you haven't listened already, listen to the study called the marathon. And so look what happens here in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. The prophet says to king, the prophet Samuel says to king Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you for now the Lord would, would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, your kingdom shall not continue. And I, I can't stress it enough. 
I can't stress enough. Make sure you listen to the study called the marathon. The marathon. Because false teachers are telling people, teaching people, that God created sin. God makes people sin. That's what these false teachers, false theories, the so-called theologians, this is what they're teaching. They stand at pulpits and they teach and they have no business at the pulpit. You see? Understand, opportunity is given to everyone. And with very specific confines that includes a person's choice. And the Lord, very simple, the Lord, He responds to these choices. Remember, the Lord, He's reactionary. And in this marathon of Saul, what we see in the life of King Saul along the way, he's the one who's making these bad choices. He's the one. Remember these behavior traits? Like, wow, you know, that's a little off. He's, yeah, he's king and he's of Benjamin and he's been anointed. And yeah, we see the offering and we see all these things. And okay, but wow, that that's a little off. We see these behavior traits along the way. Like, wow, he's the one who's making these bad choices and the Lord being reactionary. So simple. He's just responding to the choices of Saul. That's it. And so, yes, Saul's kingdom would have been established forever. But as a result of Saul's own choices, that's not happening. That's not happening. And again, I can't stress it enough. Listen to the study called the marathon. Very important to understand. Because Calvinists, Reformed theology, so-called theology, it's a theory. What does it say of God? What does it say? Because remember, we have this pre-knowledge of what's going to happen where things don't turn out so well for Israel under the leadership of Saul. Things are going to turn out so well. But then we see moments like this. It's like, well, wait a second. It's like a setup job. Is it a setup job? And so what Calvinists in Reform, what they do, they say, okay, yes, it's a setup job. And because it's a setup job, you know, because, because of A being a setup job, therefore, we must make attempt to make things fit and we come out with B. And so therefore, God made sin. And then we come out with C. Therefore, and God created sin and God makes people sin. Okay, now we come out with D and, you know, he predestines people to hell and predestines people to ruin and destruction. Okay, so it's like putting a puzzle together, putting a puzzle together. You put a puzzle together, every single piece has to fit in order. Say we have a thousand piece puzzle, a thousand piece puzzle, and everything has to fit in order to see an image, a pure image, in order to see a pure image. In precise form, precise form, every single piece has to fit perfectly. But if you ever put a puzzle together, sometimes it's like, wow, you know, I think this piece fits and this piece fits. And it's like, okay, it kind of fits, but it's like, you know, jiggly where you're like, you know, it's like this fits here, but like you, you move the pieces and there's like the, the, the wiggle room there. No, 
for us, our pieces have to fit. No wiggle room. It has to fit perfectly. But then you see pieces where, you know, you kind of like force it. You're like, you're kind of frustrated with the puzzle and it's like you kind of force it. But then if you were to continue that way and instead of changing the, instead of changing our ways and, and, and saying, okay, this doesn't fit. So let's, you know, let's try again. Let's keep trying until it fits. Instead of that, what happens if we just continue? Okay, well, let's mash this in and this isn't fitting, but let's mash it in. Let's press it in. Well, number one, you're not going to have the precise image. You're going to have a distortion of the image. And, you know, the puzzle, say the puzzle is a, you know, a rectangle shape. The, the, the borders are rectangle shape. You're not going to have rectangle shape. You're going to have like, you know, oblong here and the, the squiggly lines over here. And you're going to have like a, a circle or something. It's not going to be the precise image. You're going to have an image of something. But it's going to be something other than the precise image. You see, everything must fit perfectly. Old Testament, New Testament, and everything in between. The Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. Everything has to fit perfectly in order to have the exact image, the precise image. Everything has to fit perfectly. And the Word became flesh. And the exact image that we speak of, it's Christ. It's the Lord, Son of the Most High God. To have the pure image of Christ, everything has to fit. But then you have doctrines, and not just Calvinists, not just Reform, not just, you know, Reform is like a derivative of Calvinism, it's like Calvinism light, but it's still Calvinism. New Apostolic Reformation, the money preachers, the grave soakers, the replacement theologies. Everything has to fit, but when it doesn't fit, you're not going to have the precise image. What you're going to have is another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And you know what's happening in these last days? Christians, the saints, they're putting up with it. They're putting up with it. And it's all according to prophecy. These are things that are going to happen and it's happening and it's getting worse, but it's dangerous. And it's, it's easy to say like, okay, it's dangerous. We get it. It's dangerous, but no, 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 no. It's like beyond dangerous because I mean, it, it's danger, dangerous because of eternity and blueprints it has to be right. But when the pneumos goes kinetic, now it's another level of danger. Because the spiders, they're coming back with their friends. And their friends are not spiders. The friends are the grizzlies. And for one, look at the ratio. For one spider, what, what our Lord says, what Jesus says. The ratio is, you know, for one spider, there's seven grizzlies. You see? For one demon, there's seven that are worse. And these demons are coming back. And they hate Jesus. They hate the name of Jesus. And then you have Christians in these other doctrines who proclaim the name of Jesus. And what are they doing? They're like waving a big, big flag like, here I am. Hey, Grizzlies, here I am. Waving the big flag, waving, waving a big banner, waving, having a big strobe light. You know, hey, Grizzlies, here I am. Hey, come find me, Grizzlies. And these Grizzlies are coming back. Hey, Grizzlies, here I am, here I am. And they're going to attempt to fight? 
the Christian is going to attempt to fight, you know what's going to happen? They're going to lose. And prophetically speaking, speaking, it, it will be given Satan to prevail against the saints. It's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. According to the new, in the pneumos, it's only going to get worse. It's going to get kinetic and it's already becoming kinetic and it's going to get worse. But according to the flesh, there's going to be a semblance of peace. There's going to be a semblance of political, geopolitical victory. And that's going to be led by the Antichrist who comes in peaceably. But it's going to be a false peace. You look at like the political chaos that we see around the world. It's all over the world. Look at the political chaos that we see all over the world. Political instability, wars, rumors of wars, and not just, you know, little tiny skirmishes. Not to say that wars are, you know, little tiny skirmishes, but we're talking nuclear. This chatter of nuclear wars and all these different things. And these, you know, nuclear war, that can destroy, you know, big chunks of the earth. And so there's going to be a geopolitical peace, but it's going to be false. It's going to be fake. It's the seduction of Satan. When Satan finds his host, it is the Antichrist. And the only ones who can identify the Antichrist is the remnant Christian. That's the only group of people it's the remnant Christian. And when the remnant Christian knows that, yes, that's the Antichrist, all hell is going to break loose. And that's not said loosely, literally, biblically, all hell will break loose. You see? And this kinetic warfare, it's going to get worse. And in the pneumos, it's already getting worse and we can see it. The falling away, it's happening, and it's going to get worse. And little spiders, they're coming back with their friends for the ratio. For one spider, seven grizzlies. It's happening. Very important to understand, you see? And very, again, can't stress it enough. Listen to this study called the marathon. Because you and me in our marathons, in our marathon that we call life, we have choices to make. And as a sweet aroma, desiring to be a sweet aroma unto the Lord, do I make this choice and walking according to the flesh or do I make this choice and walk according to the spirit? And these are things that we learn. Sometimes we learn by mistake and we learn, you know, by error, but, you know, and we repent when we walk according to the flesh. Okay, Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have turned left. I should have turned right. I should have, you know, walked according to the spirit. And the Lord knows, you know, that we have grace and mercy that the Lord gives, but we're never to take advantage of his grace. We're never to take his advantage of his mercy. And we see these behavior traits in, in the king where it's like, wow, that's just a little bit off. And, you know, we don't have to reserve it just for the king, King Saul. No, we see it in people. We see it in Christians. I mean, the world is the world. Corinth is Corinth. We see behavior traits in the world that are way off. But what happens when the world looks like the church and the church looks like the world where you can look at the church and you see no difference? Look at the behavior traits that are inside the church. It's just like the 30-year-old and the 15-year-old, the example we gave earlier. 
We're in a church fellowship when the formula is right. How the church can rejoice, how you and me, how we can rejoice and say, wow, such were some of you. And it's like, wow, you know, praise the Lord because I was like that and you were like this and he was like this and she was like this and the sex, the drugs, the alcohol, the Ouija boards, the occult, all kinds of different things, the yoga, the hot yoga and the Buddha and, you know, the, the Krishnas and all these things. It's like, wow, praise the Lord because such were we, such were, you know, these are things that are in the history books in us and we can rejoice that yeah that's there the history is there yeah we were partakers of those things we were partakers of the sex the drugs the alcohol the ouija boards the alcohol all kinds of different things but when the formula is right in a church fellowship praise be to the lord such were such were some of you those days are over you see look at philippi Look at those are that's a church of former jailbirds. I don't know what crimes they committed, but you know to to, to land yourself in prison, you know you're, you're not you know you know picking up daisies. You're not you're not you're not you know you know uh, going door to door and selling cookies. You know you don't go to prison for that. I don't know what crimes they committed, but you look at Philippi, and that's a beautiful church. And you look at the makeup of Philippi; those were former jailbirds. You see. Praise be to the Lord. Look at, look at what was in their history. But then look at what's in their future. Paradise. And it's the same for you and me. Look at our history. I mean, listen. Sex, drugs, alcohol, Ouija boards, you know, uh, Buddhists, you know, yoga people, all kinds of different things. You know, male, female, young, old, you know, uh, little, you know, little, little Krishna, you know, little Buddha, little, little Buddhist. And praise be to the Lord. Now we become Christians and we're in Christ and we're in the fellowship, this beautiful, beautiful fellowship. According to the spirit, the ways of righteousness, learning the ways of righteousness, traversing the lands on our way to paradise. And yeah, such were some of us, but that's the history books, just like Philippi, their past you know, jailbirds, whatever they did to get themselves in jail, you know, the past, whatever they did, you know, list the crimes, whatever it was. But then you look at the future and straight up paradise. I mean, if you're listening and you're in prison, nowadays prisons are, you know, it's not like back in, you know, in, in some parts of the country, your, your prison cell is just, you know, here's a little hole for your bathroom, your, your bathroom is a little, you know, like a, 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 a pail, like a, a little bucket, you know, that's your bathroom and, you know, you got to lay on the floor and it's a little, you know, the, the seven by seven cell, you know, 10 by 10 cell, you know, that's kind of a, the luxury, you can, but nowadays some prisons, you know, it's like, wow, you know, you get a college education in prison. And some prisoners have the, the podcast. They give you the, the little, you know, things so you can listen to podcasts. You have internet access in prison now. You, know, you get cable in prison now. And you, you might be listening in prison. You might be a prisoner. State penitentiary, federal penitentiary. You might be in, you know, federal prison. And you're listening to this message. And, you know, let's be straight up. Yeah, you, there's crime in your past. And yeah, presently, you're in prison. But let me tell you something. Even people who are assumed free they're in a worse prison and if you're listening and you're in prison no we look at the future paradise just like philippi and you might serve your time you might be released next year five years ten years but you have freedom in christ today freedom in christ 
And if that's you, I mean, you, prison or no prison, if that's you and you want freedom in Christ, you hit pause, you listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. And you commit your life to Christ right here, right now, point blank. You commit your life to Christ. You come back, you listen, and we journey together. We continue in this walk. We continue in this journey together. Together. Young, old, male, female, I don't care. But we continue in this journey together because we're going to paradise. That's our future. Very specific blueprints. Very easy, but very intricate. Very, very intricate. Very precise. Per very precise. Narrow way. That's what Jesus says. It's the narrow way. And few find it. That's what our Lord says. You see? And so Samuel the prophet here in 1 Samuel chapter 13, look what Samuel, remember the, the, the king, he's playing the blame game. Well, it was, it, was, it was you, no, it was the Philistines, no, it was them. And so Samuel the prophet, he says, no, in verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not come. He's saying this to the king. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you, remember Samuel the prophet, he's speaking to King Saul, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see, the Lord, he's simply responding to the choices of Saul. And the one who has intimacy with God, Samuel the prophet, he's simply telling Saul about it. That's it. It's so simple, you see. Now, there's a new behavior trait in King Saul at this point. And maybe not new at all because we've seen certain things like, wow, that's a little off in Saul. That's a little off in the king, these behavior traits. And there's something that we're going to see that's going to fester and it's going to get worse. Because from now on, starting in verse 14, from now on, King Saul, he officially knows that his rule as king temporary. He knows that he's going to be replaced. And we're going to see bitterness and jealousy and envy grow and fester in King Saul. We're going to see it. Now, remember, the Spirit of God was upon him. What we're going to see in Saul, we're going to see him quench the Spirit and become apostate. It's what we're going to see in Saul. In the marathon of Saul's life, we're going to see him fall away. It's going to happen. You see, an Old Testament example of Christians who also become apostate and fall away. You see, nothing new under the sun. New interprets old, old interprets new. Now, as a little side note, not to get off topic, but as a little side note, the frequency of our studies, it's probably going to change pretty soon. You know, the regular Sundays and Wednesdays, it's probably going to change because what's happening is ministry, we're going to be working with pastors and certain preparations, certain preparations, given the times that we're in, preparations that have to be made. And the present form of this ministry, it's going to adjust. So the regular Sundays, the regular Wednesdays, that frequency, it's probably going to change. So, you know, you know, we're going to have resources in place, study resources and tools. And, you know, find a place. Find a place where you can safely fellowship among the remnant. Find a place where you can safely fellowship among the remnant. Very important. Very important. And 
the reason why we bring this up now, you know, because we mentioned these things that we're going to see in the life of Saul, but it's going to be down the road a bit. It's going to be down the road a bit. So just understand probably around, you know, right around the end of Mark in our study in the book of Mark, right around when we finish the gospel of Mark, we're going to start to see these changes. And, you know, this ministry, we're going to start working with pastors and preparing their flocks for the times that we're in. And so I can't stress this enough. If you're in a fellowship where the formula is right, do not leave. But if you're in a fellowship where the formula is wrong, do not stay. Do not stay. And so we see here what's happening in, you know, with Samuel the prophet. And when he's saying these things to the king and King Saul, we're going to see how in his life, we're going to see how he quenches the spirit and we're going to see how he falls away. An Old Testament example of Christians who are falling away in the last days, the apostates in the last days. And so here we are in verse 15. Let's see what happens. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. So this is, we see like a a pre-battle positioning, you know, kind of like, you know, everybody's getting prepared for battle and getting in their battle stations, so to speak. But we see here in verse 17, then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road of Ophrah to the land of Shual, verse 18. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found. Verse 19, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. Very interesting what we see here. Israel, writ large, was disarmed. Very interesting. Verse 20, but all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the fork, and the axes, and to set the points of the goats. So Israel here was able to sharpen their tools, but it was for a fee. A pim is like a, a unit of you know measurement in terms of you know monetary. Like we have like a quarter, you know. And you know, I presently teach from the United States, so we have like a quarter, you know, a coin. You know, we have a, a quarter, a nickel, and we call it a nickel. We call it a dime. We call it a penny. We call it a a, a, a quarter. You know, half dollar. But there's monetary value associated. That's a, a pim here. So there was a fee to sharpen tools. Notice what we see here in verse 22. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in in the hand of any of the people who were in who, who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. You see? So no sword, no spear. Now, tactically speaking, it's not a common practice to go to war without weapons. It's not <laughs> It's not a common practice. You don't see that you don't see like, you know, military tacticians. You don't see like SWAT tactician tacticians, you know, you know, how are we going to win? How are we going to do this and, and 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 you know, oh, by the way, we're disarmed. No. But let me ask you a question. We see that with Israel here. Neither sword nor spear was found in in the hand of any of the people who were Saul and Jonathan. But the question is this, 
What is impossible for God? What is impossible for God? You see? In verse 23, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to pass, went out to the pass at Michmash. So here we are, the precipice of battle. The precipice of battle. Israel is disarmed. But what is impossible for God? And next week, Lord willing, we're going to see what happens when we start in chapter 14. Lord willing. To the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people of the way. A remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.